The New York Times, a former newspaper, has joined with the Boston Globe and more than 300 other newspapers in publishing an editorial attacking Donald Trump in unison for falsely accusing them of attacking him in unison, like in the editorial. The newspapers joined in celebrating an independent free press by acting in perfect conformity, all expressing the exact same opinion, celebrating their independence and the freedom to be exactly like all the other independent papers, saying the same thing freely and independently, as long as it's the same. The Times editorial was written by their editorial board, which includes Sarah Jong, who says she enjoys being cruel to old white men. The board also includes several old white men who presumably enjoy being treated cruelly by Sarah Jong. And of course, there are some women and dark-skinned men who, I guess, just like watching that sort of thing. All in all, the Times editorial board sounds like some kind of fun S&M dungeon or some other sick pornographic fantasy for filthy-minded perverts, and therefore deserves our respect. The editorial says in part, quote, In answer to the vicious attacks on the press by Donald Trump, we hereby unite in viciously attacking Donald Trump, which, okay, we've been doing for about three years now, but this time we really mean it. Trump's false claim that the news media has become a corrupt arm of the Democratic Party and other far-left socialist institutions will be forever put to rest by this demonstration of how much we all hate him for standing in the way of the Democratic Party with his false accusations. Rest assured, as a free press, we will continue to defend free speech by assassinating the character of anyone who disagrees with us." Unquote. The editorial was first published yesterday, but you can probably still read it if you pull it out of the bottom of your canary cage and brush the bird crap off it until you can read the horse crap underneath. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, dipsy-topsy, the world is a zing It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, we are on the brink of the Clavenless weekend. Don't panic. Oh, wait, no, that's the wrong advice. Panic. Sorry. Uh, but we have a big show with uh, Jenna Ellis who's going to come on and talk to us about the Colorado cake baker who has got that poor man is in trouble again. They are just they just will not stop hounding him. Uh, Michael Reagan is also going to be on to talk about his attempts to keep the memory of our history alive, which is really interesting. Uh, first, we want to talk about movement watches like this beautiful watch that I'm wearing now, one of my many movement watches. I love these things. And I know you look at this and you say, how can they afford to sell this at the prices they do? It's because they take out the vowels. Without the expensive vowels, it's just M-V-M-T. That's how you spell movement. And without the vowels, it's just a lot cheaper. A watch that would cost you, I don't know, you know, 400 to 500 bucks in a department store without the vowels is just from $95 up. Uh, this company has grown like crazy, and now with almost 2 million watches sold in 160-plus countries, they continue to revolutionize fashion in the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. They've also expanded the sunglasses and fashion-forward bracelets for ladies, and they just believe in looking good and keeping it simple without the vowels. That's all important. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash Andrew. That's M-V-M-T, right? See why movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to movement.com slash Andrew Movement without the vowels. M-V-M-T. Join the or the movement, whatever <laughs> you're supposed to say. It. So here's just an interesting thing. A new Rasmussen poll shows the Trump's approval rating in the black 
community is now up around 36%, which is unbelievable. He started down around 8%, and I predicted this was going to happen for a simple reason. I've happened to notice that black Americans have eyes to see with and ears to hear with, and they know when they're being gamed. I mean, how long can you game a person before he catches on? But it also tells us something else. It also tells us that in the battle between Trump and the press, which is this pitched battle, it's like Moriarty and Holmes with their hands wrapped around each other's throat as they go off the falls together, Trump's winning. Trump is winning because this has been their main avenue of attack, as it always is. Everyone who disagrees with the left is a racist. Say that, you know, a guy is stupid. He happens to be black. Oh, you said it because he's a racist, not because he's stupid, which he may also be, right? If you say uh, President Obama was incompetent and corrupt, you said it not because he was incompetent and corrupt. No, it couldn't be that. It's got to be because his skin happens to be a little tanner than your skin. That's got to be what you're thinking about. So, you know, now they've got this routine. So all of this, and they just do it and do it and do it. And People aren't listening because their lives are getting better, because America is getting better, because we're at peace. They've seen ISIS has been wiped off. They've wiped off the face of the earth. They see that Trump is behaving in, you know, even though his his weird personal behavior is weird, his as behavior as president is within the bounds of the Constitution. They can see this with their own eyes. And it doesn't matter what the press keeps hammering away at. Now they're on this Omarosa, this obvious person. He called her a dog. So it's got to be because she's black and a woman. But he's called Mitt Romney a dog. He called uh, Michael Wolf a dog. He called, this, this is a thing he says. So, but don't be afraid of this because Brian Williams is investigating. It's cut number two. Does this president really physically not like dogs? Uh, that's right, Brian. He's actually the first president in more than 100 years who's not had a dog uh, as a pet in the White House. He has lived with a dog before when he first got married to his first wife, Ivana. Uh, she brought with her a poodle. Uh, he resisted the dog. He didn't want to have anything to do with the poodle, but she said, the poodle's coming along. Chappie's coming along. Turns out Chappie didn't like Trump very much because whenever Trump would come near Ivana's closet, Chappie would bark at him. I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. See, this is the problem the press has, that everything Trump says about them is true. It really is interesting, you know, if they would just either if if either Trump or the press would just edge a little bit toward compromise. If Trump would say, you know what, you know, yeah, the Russians fiddled with the election, but that had nothing to do with the results. I won because I won. If he would say that, you know, they wouldn't be able to get him on this constant, you know, uh, oh, it's a, a witch hunt and whatever he, he says. But if the press would just say, you know what, you know what, Trump is right. We are biased. There are too many Democrats, too many people, not enough Trump voters, no Trump voters in any of our editorial spots. If they would just move a little bit, but they are, no matter how badly Trump behaves, they behave worse. And people ultimately think, to hell with them. You know, why, why should we do this? And it's not just the press. It's the whole Democrat Party. But I repeat myself because the Democrat Party and the press are the same thing. You know, let's let's take a look. The, the other day, I think it was yesterday, Chris Cuomo's less intelligent brother. I can hardly believe those words are coming out of my mouth. The governor of New York. And here's what he had to say to the people. And li- this is his people. Listen to their reaction. And look, the simple point is all this comes down to this. We're not going to make America great again. It was never that great. We have not reached greatness. We will reach greatness when every American is fully engaged. We will reach greatness when discrimination 
and stereotyping against women. 51% of our population is gone. And every woman's full potential is realized and unleashed and every woman is making her full contribution. When that happens, this nation is going to be taken even higher because we have not yet fully liberated the women in this country. So let me get this straight. We, won, we, we are the first, we, we're the first constitutional republic in our time. All the others are imitations. We won two world wars and the Cold War, setting all of the world free. Not a single person who is politically free does not owe a debt to the United States of America. But the problem is our women are living in the handmaid's tale. You see them on the street with those flying nun hats and all the red things and being forced to bear other people's children. You see this in front of you, except you don't, except it's all in his imagination. But he is not the only one on the left. You know, Karl Rove has a piece in the journal today. He says, New York, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker declared that we are at a time where injustice has grown to be normal in our country. Elizabeth Warren says, the hard truth about our criminal justice system is it's racist. I mean, all the way front to back. And, and as Rove points out, this doesn't speak well of former attorneys General Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch, who be, made the justice system what, the way it is today. They had eight years to change it. It's not Donald Trump's justice system. It's still theirs. Uh, California Senator Kamala Harris joined the assault, telling Netroots that our criminal justice system has failed, besides vowing not to be shut up by opponents of identity politics. Ms. Harris unconsciously took a swipe at President Obama's record, saying we have an economy that is at work for those at the very top, but not for those doing the hardest. God, life in America is awful, according to these people. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic Socialist who became the left's overnight sensation, told Netroots that immigration and customs enforcement, these law enforcement officers, uh, has repeatedly, systematically, and violently committed human rights abuses. This is the way the Democrats talk about America. This is the way they talk about America. No matter what Donald Trump is doing, no matter what they say, no matter what tape they come up with, they're worse. They are, uh, they're worse than he is. They cannot come up with a charge. They hate the country. They keep telling us they hate the country. And listen to who won the primaries yesterday. Listen to the Democrats who won the prim prim primary yesterday. This is diversity. Diversity is our strength. You know that. Diversity is our strength. Here's a diverse group of people. There's uh, Randy Bryce, who was an admitted drunk driver. Uh, he's got, he's going to uh, try and get the seat of uh, Paul Ryan, the House Speaker. In Minnesota, Keith Ellison won his nomination for Attorney General while denying accusations that he abused a former girlfriend. Democrat Archie Parnell in South Carolina admitted to beating his wife decades ago, and he won a congressional primary. Uh, and oh, and oh, in Vermont, the governor, the uh, Democrat running for the governor of Vermont is, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me see if I've got her. Yeah, I do. Uh, Christine Hallquist. Here's Don Lemon. Uh, he, I don't know what to call, he's a guy who dresses up as a girl, so I guess that makes him a transgender something. Here, here's there, his interview with Don Lemon. Do you see this as a victory for all transgender Americans, all Americans? Yes, I do see it as a victory for all of Americans. But I will tell you, it's no surprise to me living in Vermont. I love Vermont, and uh, this is pretty typical for what Vermont is. Vermont's been a loving state, a leader in civil rights, and we're going to continue to show the rest of the country what good democracy looks like. Good democracy looks like a guy in a skirt. I mean, it's like the, it's like a Monty Python routine. And by the way, it's not attacking people who have gender dysphoria, who have problems with this, but 
Really? Really? I mean, that's what good democracy looks like. I mean, it just does look like, like Monty Python. All right, never mind. But here's a tip for all of you guys in skirts and not skirts. Dollar Shave Club is the way to go while you're sh- shaving. I use it. I have used it for years. I have been a member of Dollar Shave Club since long before I had a podcast here where they were sponsors because I think they're terrific. And as you can see, I have a lot of real estate that needs shaving. I mean, I, I could use one of those push lawnmowers they used to use. But instead, I go to Dollar Shave Club because they have everything you need to look feel and smell your best. And recently I've been using all the uh, other stuff they bring that, you know, the pre-shave and the post-shave and it's so much, it's addictive because it really does make you feel good. And it's, the, it's well, but it's essentially those razors are the key thing. They're just great razors sent right to your door once a month. You just stock the box with whatever you want and there it comes to your door. And right now you can get ready with an amazing deal on any one of their starter sets. They have this one, the Daily Essentials Starter that I really like because it's got the shave butter that I use. It's, uh, it really is cool. You can use it alone or you can use it with uh, shaving cream. Head over to dollarshaveclub.com slash Clavin to pick your own DSC starter set for just five bucks. And after your starter set, products ship at the regular price. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash Clavin, dollarshaveclub.com slash Clavin. You can look at yourself in the mirror and say, how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Have we got Jenna Ellis with us? Let us bring on Jenna Ellis. She is the uh, friend of the show, a director of the Dobson Policy Center, a contributor to the Washington Examiner. She has a book, which I just finished reading, uh, which I really, I really, well, you, you and I will have to talk about this book, a very interesting argument about the Constitution called The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution, a Guide for Christians to Understand America's Current Constitutional Crisis. But all of that is paled by the fact that you were now tweeted by the president of the United States. I was, just, I, was so, I was so impressed. I was reading the Twitter feed. I thought, I know her. I know Jenna. That's like, you know, well, my, thanks for having yeah. me on again, Andrew. And uh, yeah, that was my, my phone just immediately blew up with all these people going, I know you, this is you, this is amazing. And it, it was quite an honor to, uh, to now be featured in the president's Twitter feed. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, my yeah. one my one ambition left in life is to be the answer to a crossword puzzle, but that's pretty close, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> All right. So, what is going on with this yes. poor guy in Cal- in Got Colorado? Got a little tension in a crossword puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> What is what is going on with this big cake baker? He just got out of trouble. The Supreme Court let him let him go and now he's back in trouble again. Yeah, you know, this is just a relentless attack on religious liberty uh, by the state of Colorado. And uh, what's going on is that, of course, everyone's familiar with the Masterpiece Cake Shop opinion that was handed down by the Supreme Court that strongly condemned the very same commission for showing overt hostility and animus uh, against religious freedom and Jack the Cake Baker for refusing to decline uh, or refusing to create a custom cake. Uh, on the basis of his sincerely held religious beliefs. And so what's happened now is that he's back in front of the exact same commission, which found probable cause that he discriminated this time against a Colorado attorney who is a self-proclaimed transgender, who on the very same day, is this a coincidence? I don't think so. The very same day that the Supreme Court agreed to take up the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, called Masterpiece and asked for a blue exterior pink interior cake that was specifically intended to celebrate his transition from male to female. Of course, Masterpiece uh, declined respectfully. And now the Colorado Commission, rather than following the Masterpiece opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court, 
is again, uh, frankly, just overtly harassing Jack, making him go through the system. And this time, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, which are his attorneys, they're fighting back. They actually filed a federal lawsuit uh, Tuesday night in the Colorado District Court uh, claiming that uh, the commission is not following the opinion and uh, asking for a permanent and continuing uh, injunctive relief, basically stopping the commission from enforcing the Anti-Discrimination Act uh, and Colorado law against Jack. I mean, this is so obviously persecution. And the, one of the things the Supreme Court cited in their decision was the clear animus that the commission had against this guy, which I don't see how they're going to disprove having gone right back against him. But does this speak at all to the a lot of people at the time complained about the narrowness of the Supreme Court's decision? Does this uh, give credence to that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, from a from a legal perspective, um, this is a, a really bad strategic move for the commission for several reasons. One is because uh, this is, again, showing just their overt hostility uh, for them to find probable cause when this was clearly just an attack and a setup against Jack. Uh, but then this is providing yet another opportunity to go back in front of the Supreme Court, potentially, and Justice Kennedy, who wrote that majority opinion that was very narrow, uh, to have the opportunity with potential a Justice Brett Kavanaugh and a 5-4 conservative majority that would implement a better decision like uh, Justice Thomas's or Justice Gorsuch's concurrence that should provide a much broader opinion and a broader prote uh, protection and application of the First Amendment. Really interesting. You know, I was just thinking about uh, Kavanaugh when uh, he was nominated, there was all this noise about Roe v. Wade because that's what the left thinks is going to move the country against him. But it kind of occurred to me, I think it occurred to me while I was reading your your book, actually, that Obergefell was so the one uh, putting gay marriage, essentially inserting gay marriage into the Constitution, was so poorly decided since the Constitution gives no power to the federal government to rule on marriage at all. It was so badly decided. I thought maybe that would be the one that Kavanaugh would be far more likely to overturn since it's fresh and hasn't become precedent. Do you think there's any uh, truth to that? Yeah, yeah, I think that all of these uh, unconstitutional Supreme Court opinions, whether it uh, starts with, you know, Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965, finding, you know, these emanations from the penumbra of the Constitution yeah, that somehow, that, yeah. you know, with the, yeah, with, with this crystal ball, the justices can somehow find rights that aren't uh, specifically enumerated and articulated and then give the government unilateral power to somehow restrict those rights. So anything that flows from that case in uh, 19. 1965, which would include Roe versus Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, um, Obergefell, all of these social issue cases that have just advanced the sexual revolution, those will now uh, probably and hopefully uh, be up for reconsideration with a genuinely conservative court that would say these were unconstitutionally decided and actually adhere to the Constitution and reverse uh, those decisions. And that would be a great thing for our country to actually abide by our Constitution. That would be, be a new idea, I know. Uh, so where do you think Kavanaugh is in the uh, confirmation process? How do you think he's doing? I think he's doing great. Um, he's been, definitely been meeting with uh, the key senators over the past few weeks. And then uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee just announced last week that uh, September 4th, the day after Labor Day, will be the initial uh, hearings that will begin. And uh, the process that happens is that initially he goes before the Senate Judiciary Committee. They will then issue a report to the full Senate that can be positive, negative, or neutral. Uh, but that's not binding, of course, on the votes. That's just kind of their report. And then it'll go before 
before the full Senate for consideration and vote. And because the left uh, forced the nuclear option with Gorsuch and 51 uh, votes as a majority is now the Senate rule for confirmation, that's the only threshold that Brett Kavanaugh has to look at. And I think uh, he will get there without question. Interesting. Interesting. You know, uh, I have to tell you, there are so many questions I have to ask about uh, your book. So I want to bring you back and do that specifically. I won't do it now. Jenna, thanks so much for coming on. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks, Andrew. Um, yeah, we have to talk. We have to bring her back and just talk about the book because she makes some arguments I've never heard before, which is uh, pretty rare at this point. I think I've heard everything. But, uh, you know, just to go back for a minute, though, to this, the, what I was talking about before, about the fact that the problem that the press has and the problem that the Democrats have is that it's just apparent to people who have eyes and ears which is like a lot of people, it's apparent that they have behaved very, very badly. So anything they say about Trump just kind of keeps coming back on them. And that was true with this uh, John Brennan when they pulled his security clearance. You know, the thing the thing about pulling a guy's security clearance is it costs some money. You know, he's out there selling his expertise. John Brennan has a contract, I think, with NBC. He's out there selling his expertise. He's go, he can be consulted, go to do consultancy work and say, yes, I have an inside track. So when, he, when this happens to him and the press, oh my goodness, he's punishing his enemies. But the, the people, remember, since we started by saying this, the people aren't listening to the press because the press has just behaved so badly. So what do the people say? What do you say? What do I say when we, I hear that John Brennan's um, security clearance has been pulled? I think, well, OK, what did he do and what did Trump do? Well, what did Brennan do? He say, first of all, he set up Trump on this ridiculous Russia investigation. He accused him of treason. He's been, you know, he's just been an insidious blowhard. He has been a gas bag from the beginning with his big words, and he's just. Hey, let's play. Here's. Let's listen to Brennan's reaction to having his security clearance pulled, which, by the way, is a privilege. It's not a right. He just. They just something they do as a favor to him. Let's hear, listen to his reaction. I've seen this type of behavior and actions on the part of foreign tyrants and despots and autocrats for many, many years during my CIA and national security career. I never, ever thought that I would see it here in the United States. And so I, I do believe that all Americans really need to take stock of what is happening right now in our government and uh, how abnormal and how uh, irresponsible and how dangerous uh, these actions are. He said it was a threat to his free speech, and you can hear how he's been silenced, utterly silenced. I mean, what a what a gas bag! The guy is like he's talking about Trump as a foreign tyrant because he pulled this privilege that he had after he's done all this. So here's Sarah Sanders. So here's the thing, right? If the people are not listening to the media, if they're not listening to the media narrative, they're making decisions on their own. That's what we started with. They're making decisions on their own. So they listen to the gas bag, the insidious gas bag, and then they listen to Sarah Sanders, who's reading Trump's statement on pulling uh, Brennan's security clearance. Mr. Brennan has a history that calls into question his objectivity and credibility. In 2014, for example, he denied to Congress that CIA officials under his supervision had improperly accessed the computer files of congressional staffers. He told the Council of Foreign Relations that the CIA would never do such a thing. The CIA's Inspector General, however, contradicted Mr. Brennan directly, concluding unequivocally that agency officials had indeed improperly accessed congressional staffers' files. 
More recently, Mr. Brennan told Congress that the intelligence community did not make use of the so-called Steele dossier in an assessment regarding the 2016 election, an assertion contradicted by at least two other senior officials in the intelligence community and all of the facts. Additionally, Mr. Brennan has recently leveraged his status as a former high-ranking official with access to highly sensitive information to make a series of unfounded and outrageous allegations, wild outbursts on the internet and television about this administration. Mr. Brennan's line in recent conduct characterized by increasingly frenzied commentary is wholly inconsistent with access to the nation's most closely held secrets and facilities, the very aim of our adversaries, which is to sow division and chaos. So you hear the insidious gas bag, gas baggery, and then you listen to that, which is absolutely accurate description of what John Brennan has been up to both in office and since he has gotten out of office. And I think most people are going to come to the same conclusion as Senator John Kennedy of uh, Louisiana. I think most Americans look at our uh our national intelligence experts as being above politics. Mr. Brennan has demonstrated that uh, that's not the case. He's been totally political. Um, I think I called him a butthead, and I meant it. Um, I think he's given the national intelligence community a, 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 a bad name. I love this guy. I love John Kennedy. He will say anything. Anyway, this is the problem to have. Why the press is losing. Why I think the Democrats are losing a lot more than maybe the polls show because they have just behaved badly and they have behaved badly for a longer time than Donald Trump. Hey, it's almost speaking of people who behave badly. Michael Knowles is going to be on the conversation Tuesday, August 21st, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific. Knowles will answer your questions moderated by our lovely host, Elisha Kraus, who makes dealing with Knowles look almost effortless, almost. The Q&A will stream live on YouTube and Facebook for everyone to watch, but only subscribers can ask Knowles questions over at thedailywire.com. So you should subscribe. You can be in the mailbag. We had a good mailbag yesterday, and we'll have another one next week. All your problems solved. Subscribe. What are you doing with the 10 bucks anyway, right? Nothing. All right, Michael Reagan is, of course, the son of President Ronald Reagan and the president of the Reagan Legacy Foundation. The foundation just recently opened its walkway to victory, a World War II memorial in France. And Michael joined me to talk about that and a lot more. Here he is. Michael Reagan, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. So you've always been a very uh, clear-headed viewer (laughs) of politics. But before I talk about the present, I think I want to talk about the past because you're doing a lot of work with the Reagan Legacy Foundation. Based around World War II, have I got that right? Yeah, World War II. Actually, I got out of radio in 2009, uh, really to carry on the legacy of my father and do what I could to lift him up worldwide, if you will. And we started the Legacy Foundation as a way to raise money, scholarships, if you will, money, for the men and women who serve aboard the USS Ronald Reagan. Got it. And we started that way back when. uh, And that's worked out so well over the years, and the kids really enjoy the fact that we go to the ship, we get on the ship, we provide them the scholarships, but we do something else. We give scholarships also to the family members who are at home trying to better their education. So we give a $1,000 scholarship to the kid on the, yeah. on the, on the ship and 2000 to the family member left home. Nice. And, yeah. and it's just so fulfilling to be able to do that. So that's where it started. And then I went to, gosh, Germany a few years back, and I was talking to a young man. I said, what do you know about the Berlin Wall? Well, he said the Americans put it up to keep the communists out of their sector. No, did he say it? Yeah. And I went, really? 
<laughs> and I walked around. There was nothing about Ronald Reagan in Berlin at all. Nothing. So I started working with the uh, Maurer Museum, Checkpoint Charlie Museum. And just as they were doing the 20th anniversary of the fall of the wall, we opened up a Ronald Reagan exhibit there at the Maurer Museum in Berlin. And it's right over Checkpoint Charlie. Mm. And a few years ago, after browbeating the German government forever, they allowed us to put a, a plaque in the ground to commemorate the speech in 1987. So we have that in the ground, wow. which is great. We work with the Poles to have a, a uh, statue of my father, Pope John Paul in Gdansk, Poland. And then a few years ago, I was going to go to Normandy. And I was playing golf with a 28-year-old young man. And I told him, I said, I'm going to France tomorrow. Why? Well, I'm going out to Normandy on Sunday. I've been asked to raise the American flag at the American Cemetery in Normandy on Sunday. And he said to me, why is there an American Cemetery ow, in Normandy? Ow, I'm so sorry. And I said to him, I said, did you think D-Day was the day your report card came home? <laughs> and by the end of the round, I figured out he's the normal. And he is yeah. the normal. Yeah. The kids still believe, you know, what they believe about America and Germany. They probably do believe, well, you put up to keep the communists out of your sector. They don't know why there was a Second World War, who fought in the Second World War, who died in the Second World War. So we began to work with Normandy. And that has been just so wonderful, what we've been able to do in Normandy over the last few years. We've built a Ronald Reagan Center, uh, St. Mary Glees, Normandy, France. Mm -hmm. First town freed by America on D-Day, 4 a.m. in the morning. You got the 101st, 82nd Airborne, the 505, all of them there. And then, uh, we made another agreement with them just this last year to start doing a walkway to victory. And people could go online, walkwaytovictory.com, and purchase a brick to honor a veteran of World War II, fought in the European theater. And we lay the bricks all through the, the area there of the, of the museum at Normandy, France. It's, it's just wonderful. We just laid the first 300 bricks. Does it ever bother you when you think of the fact that Ronald Reagan freed so many people. And he, I won't say he did it single-handedly, of course not, but he had a vision that other people around him did not have. I remember, you know, he said, we we're going to win the Cold War. No Nobel Prize, no remembrance of him in the media. I mean, they gave Obama a Nobel Prize basically just for showing up. Mm -hmm. Does does that bother you? Yeah, well, it, it bothers me, but it wouldn't have bothered him. <laughs> okay. Because he wasn't doing it for the praise. Right. What What was the placard on his desk? No telling what a man can accomplish or where he can go if he doesn't worry who gets the credit. Right. Today, unfortunately, we have too many people wanting to take credit and getting nothing done. Right. Ronald Reagan didn't mind sharing the credit because he looked at the big picture. We want the Berlin Wall to come down. Who do I work with? Pope John Paul II, Lech Valencia, Vaco Havel, Helmut Kohl, Margaret Thatcher, and ultimately Mikhail Gorbachev. They all ultimately brought that down. Yes, you can give credit to my father for bringing the team together. But all of them working together were able to accomplish much. Yeah. Although, I mean, I, it bothers me when I hear people crediting Gorbachev, who would have happily kept the Soviet Union going if he could have done it. He just couldn't. What was that first meeting my dad had with Gorbachev? He said, listen, you can, you can go along with what I want you to do, or we can just bankrupt you. Yeah. And so what he did was just bankrupt him. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I look back at Ronald Reagan, I mean, we, we are now getting some really wonderful conservative policies accomplished. Mm -hmm. But the personality of the White House today and the personality of the White House back then, very, very different. Reagan always was uh, acknowledged for his good humor, uh, his kind of 
elegant way of, I mean, he was very harsh with Democrats, but he did it in a very elegant, gentle way. What is your reaction to seeing Donald Trump? I mean, let's talk about both policy and personality. Uh, what, what, how do you react? Policies you are fine. Personality sucks. <laughs> okay. It's really, yeah. it's really I, I have an op-ed piece that I'm, I'm writing. And, and basically, the op-ed piece is about Donald Trump, that if he allows his personality to take over his accomplishments, he will lose. Hmm. And and you so you have people out there who really dislike him personally. Yeah. And my fear is that that will overshadow the accomplishments that he has on the board with the tax cuts and all the positive things that are going on with unemployment and what have you across the United States of America. You know, my father, as I said in a tweet at Reagan World the other day, I said, my father never reacted to the negative press that was coming his direction ever. Which was just as intense. Ever. Yeah. But he ended up winning the Cold War. Because he didn't react to the press. He didn't have the thin skin that this president seems to have about anything and everything. I'll tell you, on Monday of inaugural week, I called president-elect, left a message with his office. I said, congratulations. I want to welcome from the 40th first family. I like to welcome the new 45th first family to the ballroom. And I said, it's going to be a week. You will never have another one like it. It's going to be your day. Enjoy it and what have you. Give that message to the president, president-elect. And that, that's where I left it. Three hours later, my phone rings. I look at my phone and it's Trump. I go, I better take the call. <laughs> so I take the call. Now, what do you think the first thing Donald Trump says to me? Oh, I'm afraid to ask. What? He says, you know, you didn't support me in the primaries. I'm thinking to myself, Really? <laughs> I called to say, congratulations, enjoy this week. And you come back and say, you know, you didn't support me in the primaries. Yeah. But that's, that's him. Yep. And then he said, you know, I didn't know your dad, but I liked your dad. Because I liked your dad, I like you. <laughs> and we need to have a Ronald Reagan day at the, at the White House. I said, great, we'll have a, you know, a Trump day at the Reagan Ranch, if you will. And we talked about that. And congratulations and so on and so forth. And hung up. But the first thing he says to me, remind me, I told him, I said, I had 16 other choices. I said, but I did support you when you won the, uh, won the, uh, uh, at the convention. He said, that's right, you did. I said, so he keeps track of every human being on the planet. <laughs> sure he does. You know, I'm sure he does. Hey, you know, I, I've heard the Hey, theory. Bob, you didn't, you didn't vote for me. <laughs> I've heard the theory that after your father got elected, the press it's not, not in a conspiracy sense, but just in an emotional sense, decided that things had gotten away from them and they never wanted this to happen again. And if you chart the bias of the press, which today is almost absurd. I mean, the bias, the, the left-wing bias of the press is now beyond anything I've ever seen. And it was always biased to the left, but now it's just insane. Do you think that maybe there is a, a reason why it took a Donald Trump to get elected, that maybe someone as uh, elegant and soft-spoken as your father would have been up against a, a worse... But remember, Ronald Reagan was not a politician either. Mm -hmm. yeah. He was a citizen politician, but he wasn't a politician. Right. So it, it's the angst against politicians getting, you know, absolutely nothing done, right. if you will, that you have the angst. And so it's to see a fresh face, if you will. And the fact that 
Let's be honest. Donald Trump was lucky. He was running against Hillary Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't even think Bill voted for Hillary Clinton. So come on. That's so, right. I mean, it was the luckiest. Talk about draw poker. You, oh boy, got an ace on this one. I'm running against Hillary. You know, and 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 so it was. It was kind of a weird election in that way. But you know, there's, there's a lot of media out there today, left and right. And I will tell you, my father got together with Tip O'Neill yep. at the White House. I don't think you'd do that today. I don't think a, a Republican can invite like a Tip O'Neill to the White House and, and put together a, a package of any sorts and not catch hell yeah. from everybody. And I also, I say this, I, I think today Ronald Reagan would have a hard time getting nominated by the Republican Party. And I think John F. Kennedy would be a hard time getting nominated by the Democrat Party. Yeah. Kennedy would be too conservative. Reagan would be too liberal. You think Reagan would be too liberal for today's Republican? Yeah, I think he would be too liberal. Well, I go back because what happens today, what you did in the past, no matter what you did later, mm. is held against you in the court of public opinion. Governor raised taxes. Governor signed an abortion bill. Yeah. Now, he gave the money back after he got more money in the coffers in California, but you never hear that side of it. Right. And, and, and he, was he went back, he on, he went he back and said, that, yeah. I've changed my mind on abortion. Right. So, but again, he did sign an abortion bill. Uh, he also, back in 1986, gave you Simpson-Mazzoli. Right. So how would Ronald Reagan, you know, do today within the Republican Party? And, and I think it would be very tough for him. I think if he got through the process, he'd win. But it's hard to get through the process anymore, as it would be for John F. Kennedy. Pro-tax cuts, you know, pro-business, you know, pro pro-military. Right. Yeah. That guy would never see the light of day oh, in the no Democratic question. His Party speeches again. sound like a Republican speech. When you go back yeah. and look at Kennedy's speeches, they sound like a Republican yeah. speech. Yeah, but you did yeah. Ronald Reagan go back and listen to his speeches when he was a Democrat. Right. He was a conservative Democrat. He just changed over to become a conservative Republican. He was still the conservative. When, if, when you look, if, if you could chart an imaginary course for the country for the next 10 years, say, and, and everything goes right, what no. would you like to see happen? What I would like to see happen, I, I, what I'd like to see happen is I'd like to see an immigration bill. Yeah. I mean, Before what, anything else, I'd like to see an immigration bill because until, until that's solved, you're going to have problems in the United States of America. You're just going to have problems truly in the United States of America. Uh, I would like to see education taken away from Washington, just like my dad tried to, but couldn't mm. when he was elected. I think the educational system in America is creating socialists, not conservatives. That's why Young America's Foundation, who I speak for and do yeah. things for, uh, and we'll be doing it in a couple of weeks again, uh, is so important uh, on the conservative side of the equation. The education system, if, if we don't fix the education system, we're not going to fix America. Mm. Just not going to happen. Yeah. And, and we've got to come to realize why is Chicago like Chicago? Why are there so many killings? Because back in the 1960s, I, I said to Don Lemon one night on CNN, I said, the problem you guys have is you think the history of the country started this morning when you got out of bed. <laughs> I know, it's, it's, it's totally true. I said, you go back to the 60s. What did we do in the 60s? We told husbands, if you want your wife who just gave birth to your baby to get welfare, you have to get out of the house. So we chased the husbands out of the house. Babies were born with no fathers in the home. What is a gang? It's a family. Yep. If, if you destroy the family on that side, they're going to find a family on that side. And the family becomes the Crips, the Bloods, MS-13, whatever the family is. But we refuse to look at the past to learn from it. We keep on putting Band-Aids on this side of it, and it never gets any better. 
And that's really sad. So bring, that brings us back to where we started. You've, you're setting up a, a walk of victory so people mm-hmm. who understand what World War II is. You set up a, a, something at Checkpoint Charlie so people understand. What, what are you trying to teach people with these things? What, what, the, what do you want the, them to learn? From what, what, I, what I want them to learn is what the history of this country really is. Mm-hmm. Why they speak English, not German. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Who these people were. You know, the, these people that... that, that that uh, flew flew in and parachuted into 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 that area of the world in the France back on D-Day. What they were trying to accomplish. 17 and 18 year old kids were doing this, and they ended up saving saving the world. And we're not teaching this in school. We don't teach it in school. We don't teach what they did at all. We don't we don't lift up America. One thing that upset my father more than anything else. We used to talk about this when Americans went overseas and pointed fingers back at America and blamed us for anything. Mm. He said, no one should blame America for anything. If it wasn't for America, where would the world be? Yeah. And, and, and we need more leaders like this that quit, you know, quit blaming America, but lifting up America. Dad talked about the shining city on a hill. We need to be talking about that shining city on the hill and why it's a shining city. Yeah. And start looking at the good side of America. What's it say on this gravesite? In all men, there is good. Ronald Reagan looked for the good in all men. We're not looking for the good today because we don't get ratings looking for good. <laughs> we get ratings looking for bad. Yeah. When you start looking for good, we want to talk about Ronald Reagan and lift up Ronald Reagan, then start looking for the good. Michael Reagan, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Good to be with you. Clearly, uh, Michael not listening, getting the word from Andrew Cuomo that America is no good. I, I don't know. I don't know how that communications uh, broke down. All right. Stuff I like. From movies that are so obscure to various bits of literature, he likes his heroes to be tough. Actual cannibal Shia LaBeouf. Shapiro talks about stuff he hates. Knowles has glasses made of dinner plates. If you don't approve, then take a hike. Announcing His Majesty's Stuff I Like. <laughs> Chris Hines. Good guitar. Nice riff. <laughs> All right. You know, one of the things that always uh, bugs me is that there's so much new stuff coming out, and I appreciate that, especially on TV. It really is still, uh, maybe not still the golden age of TV, but it's still a silver age of TV. But nobody goes back to the old stuff. I always used to notice this in movie places when they used to have, remember when they used to have, uh, uh, you know, video stores before everything streamed, you would go in and the, like blockbusters, walls and walls and walls of movies that were released two months ago. And then one little section of what they would call classics, you know, and you think like, yeah, the movie industry has been here. It was really at its peak in 1939. People should watch this stuff. It holds up. It's not like it's dated or anything like that. And TV is a little different because TV really was bad. TV really was bad until it started to be good. And that, and it started to be good right around the 80s, I would say. 1980s uh, was when some of the good stuff started. But I remember I was writing in the 90s these mysteries and crime stories with very troubled characters, guys who weren't typical good guys, guys who were kind of anti-heroes. And I got a lot of flack for it. And then one day I remember I was watching The Shield, the first episode of The Shield, and I said to my wife, you know, it's all going to be on TV now. All the stuff that they yelled at me for doing, they're going to be doing on TV, and that's what happened. But if you go back into the uh, 90s, if you haven't seen it, you should watch NYPD Blue. It, It holds up brilliantly today. It is by two of the absolute pioneers of the golden age of TV, Stephen Bochco, who in the 80s put on Hill Street Blues, which was a jaw-dropping, a jaw-dropping police show when it first came on and you saw, you know, the 
cops kind of portrayed as real people doing real things. You, you know, you just went like, whoa, what, this is totally new, totally new structure of uh, storytelling. And then he went on and joined up with uh, David Milch, who went on to do Deadwood. So these are two of the giants of the uh, TV revolution. And they created the show NY Blue. It started out with these two actors, Dennis Franz and uh, David Caruso. And after the first season, Caruso, who was kind of legendarily tough to work with, quit in the middle of the second season because he wasn't getting the contract thing he wanted. And he thought, well, I'm a star now. I'm just going to go off. And, do, and he went off and went, did movies and they bombed. And suddenly he, he was, uh, you know, not only humiliated, he actually kind of got the point. He came back and he said, you know what? I was kind of a jerk and uh, I should have treasured what I had. And he wound up on CSI Miami uh, and created a character there. But he never, ever hit his peak as he did in NYPD Blue. His, his uh, performance as Detective Kelly is just unbelievable. And the structure of it, you could see as I'm watching the first episode, and I saw it a couple of times when it was on, but I never really watched it. And I've just gone back to watch it from the beginning. I, I watched the first episode and I thought, man, the plotting in this is just perfect. The acting is great. They really are. And Dennis Franz turns in a performance. He became the star of the show. This kind of not incredibly handsome, overweight guy who played a cop like we had just not seen on television before. A good guy cop who was a little bit racist, he was a little bit prejudiced against people, and he would go in and treat a bad guy not so much by the book. So here's a scene of Dennis Franz, uh, you know, just going in and talking to a white, having a conversation with a wife beater. Can you tell me what's going on here? Yeah. You're going to central booking to get processed for beating your wife. Oh, she's pressing charges. Oh, she sure is. Yeah. Okay, now I gotta get an attorney. Up. You like smacking people around, Frank? No. You sure like smacking your wife around? There's a lot more to it than that. Ah! Don't! Why try smacking me around, Frank? Guard! He left. Come on, hit me, Frank. No! Or do you only like hitting women? Do you leave me alone? All right, here's what's going to happen, Frank. You're going in the system. And when you get out, whether it's a week or a month from now, I'm going to be there waiting for you. And then I'm going to drive you over to a bus station, and I'm going to buy you a cup of coffee and a candy bar. And you're going to get on that bus, and you're never going to set foot around here again. Because if you do, I will put you in the hospital. You got it? Yeah. That's just great, tough guy stuff. And Franz is great. He used to live in Santa Barbara, and I'd see him all the time. And, of course, he's a perfectly nice gentleman. But on the show, he plays this guy. And it, it is a terrific show. NYPD Blue, if you haven't seen it, uh, go and take a look. Also, before... Um, we say goodbye. We got to say goodbye to Aretha Franklin, one of the truly, truly great voices. We'll close with a little stuff from her. She died at 76. And another thing is they always play her later stuff. And she was great through most of her career. But her early stuff, when you hear her voice, it was just like a voice of an angel. Really beautiful stuff. All right. We got to say goodbye. The Clavenless Weekend is here. Do what you can. And survivors gather here on Monday. I'll see you then. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. And here I am by the railroad tracks, waiting for my baby. It's coming on back, back to me on the 503. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. 
Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Emily Jai. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.